You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome to this episode of Grace Saves All, where we look at our third approach to grace, in which grace actually does save and in which grace actually does go to all. I call this the inclusive approach to grace because in this approach, grace is neither transactional or exclusive. It's not transactional because there is nothing you have to do in order to be included in it. No threshold you need to meet. No part you have to get done. You are just included. Period. And it's not exclusive because everyone is included. Everyone is chosen. Everyone is in. In the inclusive approach, grace goes to all and salvation is by grace alone. This combines the best aspects of the other two approaches while leaving out their worst parts. It agrees with the transactional approach about grace going to all, and it agrees with the exclusive approach about grace alone being able to save. The vision of God presented in this approach is one of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good God, because this God allows no incurable evil to impact any soul. God is able to rescue everyone from anything God allows to happen to someone. This means that for all of us, life becomes an ultimately positive learning experience, both individually and collectively. We are all enrolled in the school of life, and we are learning the lessons of good and evil on a personal level and also on a corporate level. We are discovering our highs and lows from an individual perspective and from a global perspective as well. Given the tragedies and traumas we see in this world, it takes faith to believe in a God who is purely good. So, this in some ways is not an easy thing to believe. How can God ever make good the experience of those who have endured the greatest evils of human history? How can God cure the most evil and vindictive heart? How can God work out a justice which is both fair and restorative? The inclusive approach believes God knows how to accomplish all of this, and more than that, to bring us all to a state of goodness and love that far exceeds our current comprehension. This amazing view of God is not a new invention either. Robin Perry, in his seemingly oxymoronically entitled book, The Evangelical Universalist, gives the following examples of notable advocates of this view in the early centuries of the Church. These early Christian universalists included Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Bardasian of Edessa, Theognostus, Pyrrhus, Gregory the Wonderworker, Pamphilius, Methodius of Olympus, Eusebius, Athanasius, Didymus the Blind, Basil of Caesarea, and Gregory of Nyssa. I could keep going on with the names of other ancient Christian universalists in Perry's list, but I will stop with Gregory of Nyssa, because Gregory of Nyssa is a standout in this group. He was a very important early church leader, 
who helped define orthodoxy through his participation in forming the Nicene Creed, and he was later named Father of the Fathers by the Seventh General Council of the Church in 787 A.D. He lived from 335 to 395 A.D. He believed that just like a surgeon had to cause pain and use a sharp knife in order to heal, that God sometimes is forced to do the same. He also thought that just like gold needed to be purified of its dross in the furnace, that God may need to use severe judgment in the ages to come to purify God's wayward children from the evils to which they had become attached in this life. Gregory of Nyssa and all of these other early church fathers, which I mentioned in this list, were well acquainted with the scriptures, and they were able to read the original Greek of the New Testament because that was a language they already knew and understood. However, after Christianity became the imperial religion of Rome, the original Greek was transposed into Latin, giving a harsher tone to certain judgment passages. And practically speaking, the needs of empire and emperors did not leave much room for Christian universalism. An empire runs on violence, power, and uniformity. There needed to be an imperial version of Christianity which corresponded with the empire's needs to control the masses and to defend its borders. That doesn't mean that everything about the imperial version of Christianity was wrong, but it does help me to understand why there was little room for an officially sanctioned version of Roman imperial Christianity which taught nonviolence, love towards even enemies, and which envisioned the ultimate reconciliation of all people with God. And so there was a church council in 553 in which the Roman emperor Justinian attempted to brand the early church father Origen a heretic for elaborations on his universalist views made by others who came after him. As I said in the last episode, we will devote an entire episode, or maybe episodes, to this controversial Fifth Church Council in the future. But very quickly right now, I can summarize it by saying this. The simple proposition that God will save all human beings was never condemned by itself. Instead, the simple proposition that God would eventually save all became tangled up with other more complex speculations such as whether or not souls pre-existed in God before they came into the world, and whether or not even the devil and his demons would finally be reconciled back to God. All of these kinds of speculative questions were separate issues, which did not directly affect the more basic question about whether or not God will ultimately save all human beings. But all of these questions ended up getting mixed up together, and in the minds of many, It left the impression that they were all condemned together by the imperial church of the day. As I said earlier, we will devote more time to this issue in future episodes, but I can't resist sharing with you right now an excerpt from an article David Bentley Hart wrote on this subject. This article appeared in the journal entitled First Things in October 2015, and the title of the article was Saint Origin. In this article, Hart gives his bracing assessment of this council, which besmirched the name of Origen and succeeded in putting a dark cloud over the hope that God would ultimately save all. Here is an excerpt from this article. It is the most shameful episode in the history of Christian doctrine. For one thing, to have declared any man a heretic three centuries after dying in the peace of the church in respect of doctrinal 
determinations not reached during his life was a gross violation of all legitimate canonical order, but in Origen's case, it was especially loathsome. After Paul, there is no single Christian figure to whom the whole tradition is more indebted. It was Origen who taught the church how to read Scripture as a living mirror of Christ, who evolved the principles of later Trinitarian theology and Christology, who majestically set the standard for Christian apologetics, who produced the first and richest expositions of contemplative spirituality, and who simply said, laid the foundation of the whole edifice of developed Christian thought. Moreover, he was not only a man of extraordinary personal holiness, piety, and charity, but a martyr as well, brutally tortured during the Decian persecution at the age of 66. He never recovered, but slowly weathered away over a period of three years. I cannot really say what irks me more, though, that it happened or that, in fact, it really never did. The oldest records of the council make it clear that those 15 anathemas were never even discussed by the assembled bishops, let alone ratified, published, or promulgated. And since the late 19th century, various scholars have convincingly established that neither Origen or Origenism was ever the subject of any condemnation pronounced by the Holy Fathers in 553. The best modern critical edition of the Seven Councils, Norman Tanner's, simply omits the anathemas as spurious interpolations. So it's okay if you didn't exactly follow everything in that quote I just read, and we'll get more into the details of all of this later, but what I wanted you to know right now is that it was because of the Fifth General Council of the Church that a lasting impression was made, especially in conservative Christian circles, that being a Christian means having to reject the notion that God will ultimately save all. And so the inclusive Christian universalist approach has a bad reputation to overcome, even if it is undeserved. Also, Christian universalism faces the problem that most modern churches, which have their roots in Western Christianity, have included in their doctrinal statements that there is an eternal hell of some kind to which some people will inevitably go. This means, practically speaking, that in most churches today, the hope of a universal salvation is apparently ruled out from the beginning. That's one reason I am proud to be a member of my denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, because in our denomination we are free to form our own opinions on these matters. And one of the things I am hoping for in the future is a growing recognition throughout all of Christianity that Christian universalism should be allowed and recognized more widely. Another challenge for Christian universalism is that some people take exception to the idea that God will ultimately save all because it seems to deny the freedom of humans to ultimately resist God to the very end, should they so choose. As well, there are problem scriptures which the inclusive approach must face as well. What about the many places in the New Testament where it talks about hell? What about Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, where the goats go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life? And didn't Jesus preach about a hard road and a narrow gate which leads to life, which few find, and a wide gate and an easy road that leads many to destruction? And what about Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man ends up in a place of judgment on the other side of an unpassable chasm in the afterlife. 
And what about where Jesus talks about a blazing furnace where all the wicked will be thrown? And what about the ominous lake of fire described in the book of Revelation? These end up becoming problem passages that the inclusive Christian universalist approach will have to deal with. Since Christian universalism has some of these problem scriptures to deal with, it comes as a surprise to many that the renewed interest in Christian universalism we are seeing today has come from scholars and pastors who come from conservative evangelical backgrounds where the Bible is taken literally more often than not. Most famously, it was Rob Bell's 2011 book, Love Wins, that really brought all of this to the attention of the larger public. Bell had been at the center of a phenomenal evangelical new church start and had written books and produced teaching videos which were very popular among evangelicals. Somehow, Bell was tapping into a new way of imagining church and of reimagining what a sermon could be. His fresh approach seemed like it might become a model for the future of evangelicalism. But then, he crossed a line. And it's not like Rob Bell hadn't pushed the limits of evangelical thinking before. But in his book, Love Wins, he challenged a core assumption at the heart of evangelicalism. Bell challenged the assumption that Christian salvation is all about escaping the eternal hell God has ready and waiting for spiritual failures. In the book Love Wins, Bell didn't personally endorse a strong view of Christian universalism, but he showed that a strong argument can be made for Christian universalism. As a matter of fact, he made such a strong argument for it that many assumed he was an advocate of it. But really, Bell's explanation of the possibility of Christian universalism was just part of Bell's larger argument in the book that hope and love and goodness and joy should be the central motivating factors in a Christian spirituality. But just the suggestion in Bell's book that one could legitimately be a Christian and believe God would ultimately save all was enough to send shockwaves through the evangelical world. And now here we are. About 10 years past, love wins, and I see that we are in a kind of Christian universalist renaissance, which is gaining momentum. With the release in 2019 of David Bentley Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved, we are on now even more solid footing, because now we have one of the world's greatest scholars taking a strong stand that Christian universalism was and is the only Christian vision of an all-knowing and all-powerful God who is also all-good. My book and this podcast are just a small part of the rapidly growing body of work being produced on this subject today. If I was to give a brief historical overview of all of this, I could say that Christian universalism was present in the early centuries of the church, but in the Western church, universalism passed into disrepute in the Middle Ages. It regained some of its standing in Western Christianity in the late 1800s, but then faded from view in the 20th century as conservative Christians rejected it and progressive Christians became mostly focused on social justice and bringing God's kingdom to earth by helping the poor. In the 20th century, we could say then, conservative Christians focused mostly on saving people from hell and eternity after they died, while progressive Christians focused mostly on saving people from the hells on earth they had to deal with before they died. But after we passed the year 2000, a curious thing happened. 
Christianity's repressed universalism began to resurface. Surprisingly, the resurgence was mostly among conservative Christians who realized it had a stronger biblical argument than they'd realized, and as well among progressive Christians who felt that salvation was not only something for us to pursue in this lifetime, but also something for us to pursue in eternity, if all of creation is ultimately headed towards a final restoration in which God will ultimately be all in all. More and more people today are becoming drawn to a Christianity which is not in any way exclusive or transactional. People are excited to discover that there is an ancient view of the Christian faith in which the justice of God fits within the loving and redemptive purposes of God towards each person. I'm one of those persons, and maybe you are too. All right, that completes our overview of the three approaches to grace. The next place we will go on this journey is to take another look at the concept of hell and to look at some of the main scriptures which are used to support belief that some will be eternally lost. Until that time, I invite you to join me in believing in a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.